Hi, Erica. I'm Sinead. I'm from Evidence-Based Education. Thanks very much for agreeing to speak with me this... Well, for me, it's this evening, but for you, it's the morning. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. So firstly, um, can you just give me a bit of an introduction and tell me how your research came about? So that's... That's a good question. I can start by saying that my father was also a psychologist. And so from a pretty young age, I started thinking about like why people do the things they do. And in particular, why some students were motivated and other students were not. That became a really important issue to me because I was going to public schools in New York that weren't necessarily all that good. And so it was pretty obvious that sometimes for some students with some teachers, uh, students would do really well and feel really engaged in class. And then other times for other students that wasn't happening. And so um, that was sort of the initial impetus for the things that I study now. Um, Once I got to graduate school, I was lucky enough to work with a person who, um, sort of innovated on research synthesis and meta-analysis methods. And so that became a really important tool I used to try to understand what kinds of practices teachers or parents could use um, to support students' motivation, particularly in the classroom, but in all kinds of contexts. When you're a person who does research synthesis and meta-analysis, you're you inevitably have a really big area because you are always trying to synthesize huge bodies of work. So I've done all kinds of work, um, all related to education policies and practices, um, usually teacher practices or parent practices. But what I focus the most on are um, practices that mostly teachers, but sometimes parents can use that support students' um, experience of being autonomous autonomous or competent or feeling connected to other people in the classroom, um, both like what those practices look like and how effective they are for um, supporting outcomes that we really care about, like students' intrinsic motivation, that is feeling interest and being um, and doing some tasks because it's somehow inherently satisfying students being engaged, that is being attentive in the classroom and feeling good in the classroom. And then, of course, academic achievement, their grades and their test scores. Okay, so you you said um, there, you know, those things that we really care about. Why why do we assume that those are the things that we care about? And why why do we care about those things? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, policymakers and parents um, and teachers and administrators inevitably care about students' academic achievement. That's the main outcome they're always trying to influence, right? And for good reason. We know academic achievement is linked with other outcomes, life outcomes um, for students. Um, But we care about those other things like motivation, particularly intrinsic motivation and engagement, because we know those are the mechanisms through which students actually have enhanced achievement. So and it, it makes perfect sense when you explain it, you know, Uh, very basically just to say that without a student feeling like they want to do something or valuing it or or 
you know, feeling motivated to pay attention, there's really no chance that they're going to do well and put effort towards the task. So the first step always in enhancing achievement is making sure that students feel motivated to actually engage. Yeah. And you said kind of earlier on in your career, you kind of saw that in schools that you were in. What did that look like? So what would that look like to a teacher? What does motivation look like to a teacher? Or the opposite of that. So when you're talking about, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve, what does that look like? Well, you know, motivation is something that is actually pretty hard to see, right? This is something that's definitely happening inside the person's head. From the teacher's perspective, motivation looks like um, students who have their eyes on you or eyes on their work, students who are actually engaging in the, like actually working on the task that the teacher encouraged them to work on. That's what engagement looks like to the teacher who can't see inside the student's head. What does disengagement look like? What does a lack of motivation look like? Well, it looks like um, eyes not on the teacher or not on the task. Um, it looks like sometimes bad behavior in the classroom, like acting out or asking to go to the bathroom every 10 minutes. Um, it looks like interacting with other students in the classroom, uh, sometimes in inappropriate ways that weren't asked for. So it can look all kinds of ways, um, but it's something that is actually really kind of hard to measure unless you ask people how they're feeling and what they're thinking. Okay. Um, and how do you decide kind of what studies to look at and what to focus on in your research? How do you decide what to include and what not to include? How do you know what's right. important? So when I come up with a new idea for a research synthesis or meta-analysis, um, how I decide what goes into that synthesis is, is very much determined by the question and by what the body of research already looks like. So it, that, the answer to that question is dependent on the actual question that I'm addressing. For some bodies of research, um, you know, we have lots of experimental studies um, where two groups were compared, um, and the question we have is, it a, is about a causal effect, and therefore we look at these experiments and um, make criteria about, well, you know, what context did it have to be in to address our question? Who are our sample? You know, who's in our sample that we'll include in this meta-analysis? Um, for other questions, you know, they may be things that can't be addressed easily in experiments, and so the research is correlational, and we'll include that instead. So it's very dependent on the exact question. Of course. And can you give me any examples? So can you talk about any, you know, anything sort of current or recent um, that you've been working on? Sure. So um, I can tell you that I've done a lot of syntheses that all seem to support this notion that when a teacher or when a parent um, or others for that matter, other people, um, do things that support a student's sense of autonomy, they thrive. And so we've done a number of meta-analyses that have um, addressed that larger question 
of things that teachers and parents do to support a student's autonomy and how effective are they. So let me give you a, an older example. Um, you know, probably it's about a decade ago now. We started by thinking about if you gave students choices or people in general, really, what would the effect of that be on their intrinsic motivation? So we attempted to collect every experimental study in which researchers had either randomly assigned people to get some kind of choice about a task or didn't get a choice about that task. And what that meta-analysis revealed was really across a variety of contexts, including school contexts, that when you gave people choices about some tasks they were asked to do, that that enhanced their intrinsic motivation. Okay. Um, it, in a, to about a moderate amount, like the effect was sort of moderate in size, but it was pretty consistent, like regardless of what context or who the people were or really the kind of choice it was, um, people seemed to consistently benefit from being able to choose. Um, and actually, particularly children benefited. Um, more recent research that we've done focusing on other strategies like giving people rationales or even more generally things that teachers can do broadly um, to support autonomy that includes both choices and giving reasons why you should engage in some task even if it's boring or taking students perspectives um, all kinds of things that teachers can do to communicate that the student um, is in charge of, or at least is a participant, really, in the learning context. They're never in charge. Students are never in charge from the teacher's perspective. But they're a participant in creating the learning context and creating the instruction and the learning activities. When teachers do these things, um, our meta-analyses reveal that students benefit in a number of different ways, including being more intrinsically motivated or more engaged. I'm probably taking a little bit of a, a risk here, but would you say that even if, you know, they had the, there was the illusion that they were being given a choice or being given this sort of um, autonomy, maybe that that even had the effect of enhancing their sort of their motivation? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that there's many times that um, choices um, seem relatively trivial, or the autonomy support seems relatively, um, you know, it seems mostly like an illusion that you're not really doing much except maybe just listening to students' perspectives or the choices, you know, um, not particularly, um, I mean, it's not a big choice. It's a small choice. And yet it still has an effect on students' experiences of the task. Um, what's probably important is that all these things come, that they're experienced as sincere, that, um, that teachers truly want to give a voice to students, that the, the kinds of choices they give are meaningful and personally relevant, and the autonomy support they give um, communicates that the student's perspective is important and that 
the learning context is being shaped with the students' personal values and interests and preferences in mind. Um, and when it fails to do that, it can backfire. Oh, right. So the, the opposite is also true. Yeah, if it's not, if choices are not sincere, if they, they can be small, but they can't be meaningless. They can't be like, and they can't be controlling, right? So they can't be choices like, um, you know, like the kind of choice a parent might give. You can either eat your broccoli or go to bed, right? That's a super controlling choice. And um, no child thinks that they really have a choice when a parent says that, right? Uh, you're just trying, they think your parent's just trying to make them do something. That they don't want to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and did you find a particular age group that this affected or did you look across different age groups? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually for both, um, for the ch for our choice meta-analysis, we found that actually um, choices do seem to benefit we couldn't break it down to very specific ages, but K through 12 students much more than adults. And for autonomy support in general, when teachers give autonomy support, it seems to benefit middle schoolers, actually, adolescents, um, young adolescents, more so than other age groups. And that probably has a lot to do with the fact that um, adolescence is a time when people are trying to develop their identity and assert their autonomy. And so when teachers actually um, support that developmental milestone with their practice, it has a bigger effect. Um, it benefits everybody, but it's, it's particularly effective for middle schoolers. Okay. So in terms of how that translates into classroom practice, then presumably the advice that you might give would be give options to students, you know, help them to have some autonomy. Yeah, I think there's a choices are one um, really concrete strategy that teachers understand quickly and can find ways to give choices in their classroom. And I think it's a good one. I think it's important to remind teachers that too many choices can backfire, right? So you want to be you want to be thoughtful about what choices you give, and you also want to be thoughtful about the students you're giving them to, because sometimes students, even though in general it has benefits, later research we did with ex in experimental studies suggested that well sometimes people don't actually feel that um, competent when they're making a choice, and when they don't feel competent about the task you're asking them to make choices about, it can backfire and not have benefits. So they want to be careful about what kinds of choices they give that people are prepared to actually choose, that their students are prepared to choose, um, and that those choices are truly meaningful for the students they're giving them to. But even when you can't give choices, there's other things that teachers can do. They can, some a lot of things teachers ask students to do are kind of boring. And so it's really important if you want to want students to feel motivated and engaged that you provide a reason why the task is actually important and related to their, the students' um, values or interests or, or long-term goals, right? Connect it to um, the student themselves. Um, so that they feel like they want to do it because they want to do it, not because the teacher wants them to do it. 
Okay, so you can um, increase the student's intrinsic motivation by giving a rationale. Yes, an autonomous one or a pro-social one versus, again, not a controlling one, right? Because you can give controlling rationales like you should do it because it's on the test or because I said so or because if you do, we'll have a class party at the end of the week. Those are not rationales that connect necessarily with the students' identities and they actually can backfire. So what would be a better alternative? So finding what, if you know what a student's goals are, trying to connect the task to that, to those goals. So knowing that some of the students in your class want to be doctors, if you're teaching a science class, like demonstrating how, well, this is a boring thing we have to do maybe, but let me explain how it leads to some of the other things that we're going to learn to do later that are really important for people who um, go off and be neurosurgeons, whatever it is, right? Connecting it to the real world or showing how it's been used um, in people's real lives is often a way to make those rationales seem useful. Or even just saying, like, if you learn this, let me explain to you how you knowing this will make the world a better place. Um, that is also a pretty powerful way of um, getting students to endorse the idea that what they're doing in class is important and they should feel motivated to do it. And is there, you know, is there kind of a, a, a peak age for doing that? I think that strategy is useful for everyone, actually. Um, and um, in the meta-analyses we've done, we haven't found any age differences in rationale provision in particular. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much for sharing that with me. Um, is there anything else that you would like to sort of mention about your research while we're here that you think is important that you'd like to share with, with teachers, with classroom practitioners? Um, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's always sometimes um, a challenge for me to encourage teachers to be more autonomy supportive in their practice and give choices and give rationales and, and be open to hearing students' perspectives and being open to hearing like sometimes their negative feelings in the classroom and being responsive to that. Because, and I understand why, because that stuff feels like it takes a lot of time and sometimes it feels more effective to just be very rigid and controlling in the classroom. And while, while sometimes being rigid and controlling gets you the immediate outcomes that you want, it doesn't necessarily promote the long-term outcomes that I know teachers really want to promote in their students. So I guess I would just end by saying that, um, I would encourage teachers to really consider these practices like choice giving and provision giving and perspective taking as really critical um, strategies they can use to promote a lifelong love of learning.